Section 90 of India, Persia, Mesopotamia, and Palestine. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The World's Story, Volume 2. India, Persia, Mesopotamia, and Palestine, edited by Eva March Tappan. Section 90. How the Assyrians and Babylonians Lived, by A. H. Sace. Babylonia was the land of bricks, Assyria of stone. It was in Babylonia that the great tower had been built of brick, whose head it was intended should reach to heaven. The bricks were merely dried in the sun. It was but rarely that they were baked in the kiln. When it was wished to give additional solidity to the walls of a building, lighted fuel was piled up against them, and their surfaces were thus vitrified into a solid mass. But usually the Babylonian builders were content with the ordinary sun-dried brick of the country. Naturally it crumbled away in the course of time, and the brick structure became a mound of shapeless mud. Nebuchadnezzar tells us how the great temple of the seven planets of heaven and earth at Borsippa, near Babylon, whose ruins are now known under the name of the Bursi at Nimrud, and which has often been identified with the Tower of Babel, had been destroyed before his time by rain and storm, and neglect to repair its drains. In fact, the plain of Babylonia was covered with artificial hills, formed of the debris of ancient temples which had been allowed to fall into decay. One of the earliest names given to it on the monuments is that of the land of mounds. No stone was found in the country. If stone was used, as for instance by Nebuchadnezzar in his construction of the keys of Babylon, it had to be brought from the distant mountains of Elam. Even the smallest stones and pebbles were highly prized. Hence it was that in Babylonia the art of engraving seems to have taken its rise. We learn from Herodotus that every Babylonian carried about with him an engraved seal attached to his wrist by a cord, and the statement is fully confirmed by the native monuments. The seal was of cylindrical shape, pierced longitudinally by a hole through which the cord was passed. When it was needed to be used, it was rolled over the wet clay which served the Babylonians as a writing material, and it was regarded as the necessary guarantee of the owner's identity. No legal deed or contract was valid without the impression of the seals belonging to the persons who took part in it. The engraved stone, in fact, was as indispensable to its owner as his name itself. In Assyria, on the contrary, clay was comparatively scarce, and stone was plentiful. Hence, while the temples and palaces of Babylonia were built of brick, those of Assyria were, at all events in part, built in stone. The Assyrians, however, had originally migrated from Babylonia, and they carried with them the tradition of the art and architecture of their mother country. Accordingly, while making use of stone, they nevertheless did not altogether forego the use of brick. The walls of Nineveh, in spite of their height, were constructed of brick, and it was only the basement of the palaces which was made of stone. We need not be surprised at this slavish imitation of a style of building which was out of place in the country to which it was transferred. In another respect, the Assyrians imitated the architecture of Babylonia even more slavishly and needlessly. This was in the construction of vast platforms of brick upon which the temples of the gods and the palaces of the kings were erected. In Babylonia such platforms were necessary in order to secure the edifices upon them from the danger of floods or the inconveniences of a marshy soil. But in Assyria similar precautions were not required. There the buildings could have been raised on a foundation of rock without the intervention of an artificial platform. 
the brick walls of the babylonian houses were covered with stucco which was then adorned with painting dados ran around them whereupon were depicted the figures of men and animals in the assyrian palaces the dado was formed of sculptured slabs of stone and painted in imitation of the dados of painted stucco which were usual in babylonia the cornices and other portions of the walls were in the houses of the wealthy often ornamented with bronze and alabaster and even gold at times ivory was used for the same purpose as in the ivory palaces of samaria the doors more especially were overlaid with bands of bronze and were frequently double the hinges revolving in sockets of bronze the windows were protected from the weather by means of curtains of tapestry and a flight of steps open to the air led to the upper stories of the house the steps opened upon a court around which the sitting-rooms and bedchambers were built the apartments assigned to the women being kept separate from those of the men all these luxuries however were confined to the rich and noble the mass of the people lived like their descendants to-day in mud cabins with conical roofs of clay they had to be content to live on the ground floor and to exclude the cold and rains of winter not with costly tapestries but by making the apertures in the walls which served as windows as small as possible it is needless to say that the bronze and sculpture and painting which adorned the habitations of the wealthy were unknown in those of the poor even in the houses of the wealthy the furniture was doubtless as scanty and simple as it is still to-day in the east rugs of variegated patterns were laid upon the floor and chairs and stools of various shapes and sizes were used the stools were generally lofty so that the feet of the sitter had to be supported on a footstool some of the chairs were provided with arms at times instead of chairs couches or divans were employed the luxurious assyrian would even recline on a couch when eating a habit which passed from the east to greece and from greece to rome so that in the days of our saviour it was more customary to recline than to sit at meat one of the bas-reliefs in the british museum represents the assyrian king ashurbanipal lying on a couch while he drinks wine and feasts after the defeat and death of his elamite enemy though his wife who participates in the banquet is seated on a chair the custom of reclining at meals was doubtless borrowed by the assyrians from babylonia since the older native fashion was to seat the guests at a dinner party on lofty stools on either side of a small table at night the wealthier classes slept on bedsteads covered with thick mattresses or rugs poorer people were satisfied with the mattress only which was spread upon the ground and rolled up when no longer needed for use it was a bed which could be taken up and carried away like the beds we read of in the new testament all classes alike slept in their ordinary clothes the house of the well-to-do assyrian or babylonian was not considered complete unless it was provided with a garden or plantation which it would seem was usually planted in front of it it was well stocked with trees among which the palm naturally held a chief place in warm weather tables and seats were placed under the shade of the trees and meals were thus taken in the open air those who could afford to keep slaves for the purpose employed one of them in waving a large fan in order to drive insects away while the meal was being enjoyed in taking the lease of a house the tenant usually agreed to keep the garden in order and to replace any trees that might die or be cut down the garden was irrigated from one of the numerous canals which intersected the whole of babylonia the rich employed hired laborers for the purpose the poor had to irrigate their own plot of ground the water was drawn up in buckets and then poured into a number of rivulets which ran through the garden 
Vegetables of all kinds were grown along the edges of the rivulets, more especially onions and garlic. It would appear that flowers also were cultivated at all events in the gardens of the wealthy, since vases of flowers were placed on the tables at a banquet. The costume of the people was as varied as it is in the modern European world. Old lists of clothing have come down to us which contain as large an assortment of different dresses and their materials as could be found in a shop of today. Among the materials may be mentioned the Sindhu, or muslin, of India, which is described as being composed of vegetable wool or cotton, and so bears testimony to an ancient trade between Chaldea and the western coast of India. Most of the stuffs, however, were of home manufacture and were exported into all parts of the civilized world. It will be remembered that among the Canaanitish spoil found in the tent of Achan was a goodly Babylonish garment. In spite of the changes of fashion and the varieties of dress worn by different classes of persons, the principal constituents of the Assyrian and Babylonian costume remained the same. These were a hat or headdress, a tunic or shirt, and a long outer robe which reached to the ankles. In early Babylonian times the hat was ornamented with ribbons which projected before and behind like horns. At a later period it assumed the shape of a tiara or peaked helmet. The material of which it was composed was thick and sometimes quilted. The upper classes further protected their heads from the sun by a parasol, which in Assyria became the symbol of royal or semi-royal authority. The tunic was of linen, or wool, the latter material being much employed, particularly in cold weather. It reached halfway down the thigh and was fastened round the waist by a girdle. A second tunic was often worn under the first, doubtless during the winter season. The long robe or cloak was especially characteristic of the Babylonians. It opened in front, was usually sleeveless, and was ornamented at the edge with fringes. In walking it allowed the inner side of the left leg to be exposed. Not unfrequently the girdle was fastened round it instead of round the tunic. In Assyria the king sometimes wore over his robe a sort of chasuble, richly ornamented like the robe itself. The Babylonian priest was characterized by a curious kind of flounced dress which descended to the feet, and perhaps was made of muslin. From immemorial times a goatskin was also flung over his shoulders, the goat being accounted an animal of peculiar sanctity. On Babylonian cylinders and seals a priest may always be at once distinguished by the flounces of his dress. The costume of the women differed externally but little from that of the men, at least when the latter were dressed in their outer robe. The queen of Ashurbanipal is depicted in a long unsleeved robe over which comes a fringed frock reaching below the knees, and over that again a light cape, also fringed and patterned with rosettes. On her feet are boots, and around her head is a crown or fillet representing a castellated wall, thus resembling the mural crown of Greek sculpture. Earrings, bracelets, and a necklace complete her costume. Earrings, bracelets, and necklaces were also worn by the men. Anklets are referred to in the inscriptions as well as finger rings, though the usual substitute for a finger ring was the cylinder, which, as has already been stated, was attached by a string or chain to the wrist. The Babylonian, at any rate in earlier times, seems ordinarily to have gone barefooted. Already in the twelfth century B.C., however, we find the king wearing a pair of soft leather shoes, and in Assyria sandals were in use from an early period, the sandal being furnished with a cap for protecting the heel. Footnote. Merodach Nadinaki, B.C. 1106. He has on his head a tall square cap ornamented in front with a band of rosettes immediately above the forehead, 
while a row of feathers in an upright position runs round the top. It is curious that a similar headdress was worn by the Zakur, who are usually identified with the Teucrians, and are among the foreign enemies depicted upon the Egyptian monuments. In footnote. The northern conquests of Tiglath-Pileser III and Sargon introduced the laced boot of the inhabitants of the colder regions in the north. The cavalry who had hitherto ridden with bare legs now adopted high boots laced in front and worn over tightly fitting breeches of plated leather. Certain of the foot soldiers were also clothed in the same way, while others of them wore boots without the trousers. Sennacherib was the first of the Assyrian kings who discarded the sandal in his own person and substituted for it a shoe, which, like the military boot, was laced in front. It must not be imagined that the robe or even the tunic was always worn. In fact, the light-armed troops in the Assyrian army were contented with a simple kilt, which, together with a felt skull-cap, constituted the whole of their dress. This was also the costume of the Babylonian laborer when working in the fields, and both Assyrians and Babylonians, while engaged in manual work or military operations, discarded the long and inconvenient outer robe. It was only the upper classes who could afford the luxury of wearing it in everyday life. So, too, the use of a hat or cap was not universal. Numbers of people were satisfied with tying up their hair with a fillet or string, even when exposed to the heat of the sun. At times even the fillet was dispensed with. The hair of the head was worn long, and the Assyrians distinguished themselves from their neighbors by dressing and curling both it and their beards. The fashion must have been derived from the early Semitic population of Babylonia, since the hero of the great Chaldean epic is represented on ancient engraved seals with a curled beard. On the other hand, the practice was unknown to the non-Semitic population of the country. The sculptured heads, for instance, found at Teloth, which belonged to the Akkado-Sumerian epic, are either beardless or else provided with long uncurled beards which terminate in a point, the musked and curled Assyrian bull spoken of by Lord Tennyson being a Semitic creation. Here as elsewhere fashion was determined by physical characteristics, and it was only among a Semitic people distinguished by its thick growth of black hair that the art of the hairdresser could develop as it did in Semitic Babylonia and Assyria. The comparatively beardless Sumerians rather encourage the barber, who accordingly occupies a conspicuous place in early Babylonian literature. End of section 90. This recording is in the public domain. Recording by Philip Gould.